Well, hey, Medina East family, Pastor Tony here, and I'm actually coming to you from the Medina East campus building and uh, a, uh, a somewhat quiet building uh, at that. And so I just want to say thank you for joining us uh, for this unique online weekend service experience. Before we jump into that, I wanted to give you some important updates and announcements. And uh, I know you saw in the email update over the, the last few days, uh, in light of the gathering uh, ban issued by our governor regarding groups of over 100 people in size, um, our leadership team here at Grace has decided to suspend all Grace Church gatherings up until April 4th, uh, the weekend of April 4th. And so while we might not uh, be physically meeting all together for the next few weeks, that does not mean that church is canceled, right? And uh, as we talk often here at Grace, we know the church is not a location, the church is not a service, uh, the church is people, right? And so uh, in some ways, uh, this is actually a great opportunity to remember that what church is really all about, right? That it's not about a stage, it's not about a band, it's not about a building, but it's about the people of God living out our faith in every setting and being the hands and the feet of Jesus in our community uh, and in our world. Uh, and so while in no way uh, do I wanna be dismissive of the seriousness of the situation, I do believe this is kind of a neat opportunity for us and for our church to be the people of God and an opportunity to be dangerous for God, to be light in times of uncertainty to our neighbors and to our community. And so here's just a few ways I think that we can do that. So first off, I want to let you know about Five and Change. So every two months or so, uh, we kind of focus on making an impact in our community and world together by mobilizing our church towards praying, giving, and going. And so with Five and Change, what we're saying is, man, imagine if our people gave about $5 and some change to make a change. Imagine the impact that we could make if we rally together. So for example, uh, last time we gave to Five and Change, we uh, together gave over $2,000 for birthday boxes. And not only that, but we also collected over 60 birthday boxes in 20 duffel bags that are being given to children in the foster care system to meet a great need. And so, man, it's amazing. It's amazing the big impact God can make through us together. And so this month, in light of the current happenings that are happening within our community, uh, we are partnering with Mayor Hanwell of the city of Medina and Love, Inc., which is one of our partner ministries, to express the love and hope of Jesus to our community. And so we are wanting to raise money in order to help in the three following ways. So number one, we wanna help provide meals for students and families that are in need. So as many of you might know, uh, with school not in session, there are many children who will not receive meals as they rely on the school meal program. And then secondly, I wanna provide groceries and supplies for uh, the elderly in a safe and yet a responsible way. And then thirdly, we wanna open up opportunities for childcare or babysitting for parents who uh, must work in these times while kids do not have school. And so at this point, uh, we're still kind of talking through more details on ways that we can be physically involved in some of these things within our community. We'll be giving more updates on our website on how we can do that. But right now, all of our financial giving to Five and Change, 100% of that is gonna go to partnering with our community in these ways. And so you can connect with this by clicking the Five and Change link on our website or go to our app and get it there. And I think if we really rally together, we can make a big difference Secondly, I also wanted to update you on what to expect over the next few weeks uh, regarding the weekend services. And so our plan at this point is to provide an online experience uh, this weekend and also for the next two weekends up until the gathering where we get together on April 4th and 5th. And so while we can't meet in person, uh, this online experience is designed for you to engage within your own home or in other creative ways. We would actually encourage you to think of creative options to connect and gather with God's people in ways that are both respectful to our government's wishes, but also are considerate to those uh, who are more vulnerable within our community. Also, for the next two weekends, uh, next weekend and the weekend after that, I wanted to mention to you that we're actually gonna hit pause for a moment on our What's the Different series. And we're actually gonna share two unique messages in which we're gonna talk about how to be uh, best be the people of God during this time. You might remember back in the early fall, we actually did a series that we called Highlight God Through You, in which we talked about how uh, those who follow Jesus should live as highlighters, right? Those who stand out in such a way that people can see God through us. 
And so we believe this is our time to shine as God's people in an unprecedented way, to be a dangerous church for God in a time like this. So over the next two weeks, uh, we will look at key passages in the Bible that speak to this moment that we're in right now. We'll also talk practically about, hey, what can, what can we do to highlight God through us together? And so that's all going to be next weekend and the weekend after that. But now for this weekend, even though we're not physically meeting together, uh, we wanted to give you some resources and ways to stay plugged in. So below on this website, uh, you will see a button that's labeled Online Weekend Experience. And this link will take you to everything you need to engage in our online weekend service. So for example, you're going to see a parent queue, uh, a resource for families with children who would normally join us in Power Kids. We'd encourage uh, parents to utilize those resources with your child. For middle school and high school students, we want to encourage you to listen in on the weekend message along with your parents and engage the weekend service uh, in that way. You'll also see a Spotify playlist of songs uh, to encourage and to help us worship together in mind and spirit. And so we'd encourage you to listen to those songs after the message with your family or those that you're with and uh, also throughout the week as a way to unite our hearts. Also available is access to Gracelink, uh, where you can continue to give your regular offering or to Here We Go. So lastly, um, I just want to say I'm very excited that for today's message, we have a chance to hear from the Norton Campus Pastor Dan Gregory as he continues in our What's the Difference series. Uh, Pastor Dan was planning to be with us live this weekend, but obviously there was a change of plans. But he was gracious enough to share with us all via video, and so we are grateful for that. Uh, for those of you who might not know Pastor Dan, as I mentioned, he is the campus pastor down at our Norton campus, and he is among, honestly, some of the, one of the wisest men that I personally know. Pastor Dan is not only a gifted teacher and leader, uh, but he is also a mentor and a pastor to me personally. And so I am thrilled that we get a chance to learn from him together. So hey, I love you guys. Uh, we miss seeing you this weekend in person. But we know that God is going to do some pretty great things in and through us during this time. So be wise, stay safe, and be dangerous for God in prayer, in faith, and in love. Well, hello, Medina East Campus. Uh, I'm Dan, and uh, I'm from the Norton Campus. It is so good to be able to talk with you. Uh, I was looking forward to being with you in person, uh, but as events kind of unfolded, it made that impossible. So. Uh, we hope you're doing well, wherever you're watching this from, but it certainly is good to be able to be with you. Love hearing what God is doing over here. So excited about what God is doing in you and through you uh, in your Here We Go campaign. Love uh, seeing the uh, unique results that God has brought about. And I'm so excited to see what He's going to do as a result of you guys taking this journey together. Uh, I just want to say this. I love uh, hanging out with some of the leadership and uh, the people that you have in leadership here. You have an incredible leadership team, and so I love them dearly. Uh, God is doing some neat things through them. And I absolutely love your campus pastor. Uh, he's one of my favorite people to hang out with, and so so grateful that you get a chance to follow his leadership and uh, to hear from him every week. And so I felt honored when Tony asked if I'd come and talk to you guys in this series you're doing called What's the Difference? Uh, he asked if I would come and share with you for a few minutes about the Islamic faith. And uh, I said I'd be happy to do that. I felt honored and privileged to do that. So if you have a Bible, you might want to grab it and turn to Galatians 3 and just kind of have some conversation uh, as we kind of explore uh, the Islamic faith. It seems like it's a very important topic for us to talk about. There's several reasons I think it's a very relevant topic to talk about. First and foremost, uh, the Islamic faith is probably the fastest growing religion in the world. There's about 1.9 billion people who would say they're Muslims, which are people who adhere to the Islamic faith. Uh, it's about 25% of the world's population. And so when you think about this, uh, depending on what study you read, it is either the second largest religion in the world, or some studies would say it's the largest religion in the world. Uh, by far and away, it has the youngest demographic when you look at world religion. So it seems to be a really, really important conversation to have. Uh, beyond that, if you follow the news or you kind of watch the TV, you know that in large part it's got a lot of press, right? And uh, what can happen in light of the press that it's gotten is uh, that we can begin to broad brush uh, what we think are stereotypes of Islamic people based on 
the perceptions and the pictures of a few. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, I wouldn't want somebody doing that with me. Uh, somebody kind of making a stereotype of uh, the faith that I have based on maybe the pictures of a sum. And so what I'd love to do for a few minutes is just kind of have a clear, honest, concise conversation about uh, the Islamic faith and those who would call themselves Muslims. Uh, love to be kind about it and, and not cruel. And I'd love for us to kind of seek to understand as we do that. You know, something I know is this, is that you can be right, right? You can be right in all the wrong ways. Uh, I know people that would call themselves followers of Jesus. They, they line their life up with Jesus. And uh, for some of them, when they talk about those of the Muslim faith or those who are in the Islamic faith, uh, they talk about them in ways that don't seem to look much like the one that they line their life up with. I've talked with some who would say, well, uh, those who are Muslims, they're the enemy, right? They're, the, they're our enemy. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that at all. But I would say this, even if you did believe that, uh, I would like to remind you of the one who, if you're a Christ follower, you line your life up with. In Matthew 5, when he was preaching a sermon, he said this, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I think it's important for us to have this conversation and to seek to understand and to seek to be kind and clear uh, as we kind of dig at the truth. And I think it's good that you have this conversation through the lens of the book of Galatians because when you get to the book of Galatians, a guy named Paul's writing it. And the whole reason that he's writing it, he's writing it to Christ followers. There's Jewish Christ followers and there's Gentile Christ followers. And when you get to the book of Galatians, what's happening is this, is there's these Judaizers that are trying to press these Christ followers into their religion. They more or less want them to follow certain rules, circumcision, follow uh, obeying certain laws, uh, commemorate certain days, eat certain food. Paul's writing this letter. The whole reason he's writing Galatians is he is in strong words wanting to confront what these Judaizers are doing. That's what he's doing. He's wanting them to stop distorting the message of Jesus with their religion. And he wants to make sure those who have received the message of Jesus don't somehow get swayed. Paul wants to make clear that the message of Jesus called the gospel we just call it the gospel, the good news. The message of Jesus is very different than religion. See, the message of Jesus for the gospel is God's plan to rescue us. Religion is man's attempt to confuse God's plan. The message of Jesus is an announcement that God made. Religion is advice. The message of Jesus says, I need rescued. Religion says, I think I can refine my life with a little bit of behavior modification. I'm going to be okay. Uh, the gospel says I'm powerless to save myself, right? Religion would say, well, I got the power to kind of make my life a little better, to make my, myself a, a little better. Uh, the gospel produces grace and peace. And religion, on the other hand, is something it produces. Some of you know this, right? You're sitting there and you know this because you've been in religion. It doesn't produce grace and peace. It produces guilt. Some of you face that. And it produces pride. That's why I think it's interesting when you look at Galatians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open, Paul in very strong way says this. He says, you foolish Galatians, he says, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And then he says this, I want to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? That's simply his way of saying when, when you say yes to Jesus and to the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit lives inside. Did you become a follower of Christ, receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, he says, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Paul simply looked at them and said, hey, listen, the message of Jesus isn't something that you earned or achieved by works of the law. But he said it came because you believed what God has said. 
And then he says, after you accepted that, why would you think somehow things changed? Like the gospel is important not just to save you, but the gospel is important in how you and I live following Christ. Then Paul does something interesting that I think is very relevant for our conversation today. He says this in verse 6. He says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The group Paul would have been talking to, just think about this, it's interesting, right? He's talking to a bunch of Jewish people, and when he said the name Abraham, he was in a major way dropping names. He was simply dropping names. We're in kind of a political season, and whatever you think about politics and whatever part, all that aside, we can say this, politicians are really, really good about dropping names. And the reason that you drop names is you want to mention somebody's name that's going to give leverage to your argument. And so if you've been following things, people drop names like Ronald Reagan, right? Or Barack Obama or JFK, Abraham Lincoln. Why are they doing that? Because they want to somehow give leverage to whatever argument or platform they're proposing. When Paul said the name Abraham, he could not have said a more important name to the group that he's talking to. That was the most important name because they would have tied up their religious heritage, their national heritage, their cultural heritage to a guy named Abraham. That literally what Paul is saying, he's saying to them, the most important guy in your history did not become right with God by somehow conforming to a religion. But he became right with God through faith by believing what God said. Now, here's why that's important. Because Judaism, we're going to get to Islam in a minute. Judaism would trace its roots back to Abraham through his son Isaac. So Judaism is going to trace its roots back to Abraham. And so when Paul said the name Abraham, boom, right then, they would have perked up. Here's why that's interesting for the sake of our conversation today as we just kind of have a conversation. The very same thing would have happened if Paul had said that to a room of Muslims. The Islam religion did not come into formation until about 500 years after Paul would have written this. And yet if Paul had said this in a room full of Muslims, their ears would have perked up the same way. Why? Because whereas Judaism's roots go clear back to Abraham through his son Isaac, Islam's roots go back to the same guy, Abraham. But they go back to the same guy, Abraham, through his other son, whose name was Ishmael. Now, if you don't know the story, the story's interesting, right? So if you're newer to the Bible, trust me, I'm going to take you on a little journey and I need you to stay with me. It's so important. But if, you, if you're newer to the Bible, you're like, man, there's some crazy stuff in the Bible, right? But, but Abraham's story, and you can check me on this. It's just fascinating stuff. It begins in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God says something pretty outlandish to Abraham. He says this. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. All the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed through you. Man, what an incredible promise. Here's what you need to know. At the time that God is telling Abraham he's going to make him a great nation, Abraham is 75 years old. Kind of late to the game. The story's kind of interesting because not only is Abraham old, his wife is old, and they can't have kids. This is something that Abraham, when he hears it, he's like, God, only you can do this, right? But as the story unfolds, Abraham gets this promise from God that God's going to make a great nation through him. And then he and his wife, he goes and tells his wife, like, we're going to have a kid because there's going to be this great nation's going to come. And guess what they did? 
They waited. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And nothing happened. Does that sound familiar? Some of you might be in the same boat. Maybe you're waiting on God. Maybe you're waiting for God to do something in your life. See, I think this is fascinating. If you're newer to the Bible, can I tell you this? It helps me because it makes me understand that the Bible is full of real people with real problems in real situations just like you and me. The story's interesting because by the time you get to Genesis 15, they had waited and nothing happened. So Abram says to God, Sovereign Lord, verse 2, What are you going to give me since I remain childless? I don't have a kid. And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said this, You've given me no children. You said you would. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So he took Abram outside and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can. Then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram's like, I don't got a child. And by the time this is happening, he's 85 years old. Ten years had passed. He's like, God, you said I would have a child. A great nation's going to come from me. No child. God says, I promise you, you're going to have a child. This is where the story gets interesting. The story gets interesting because at this point in the story, Sarah, Abraham's wife, has an idea. And the idea she has is this. They've waited 10 years and she has this idea, I'm going to help God out. I think God needs me to help him out with his plan. Can we just stop for a minute and say this? That it's probably never a good idea to fill in the gaps and say, God, I think I'm going to help you out with your plan, so to speak. That sometimes we can get ahead of ourselves. We can get over our skis, so to speak. Some of us, you might be facing this. I don't know. I don't know all of your stories. But sometimes we can kind of get ahead of ourselves and say, God, I feel like i got to help you out. I, I don't know your story. Maybe you're sitting there watching this and maybe you're single. And you're like, I want to meet somebody. I want to meet somebody. I want to meet a, somebody who's following Jesus with all of their life. But I haven't met anybody. And so I think I'm going to help God out. I think I'm going to help God out. I'm going to hurry up the plane. I'm going to step outside of God's plan to find somebody to spend my life with. Maybe it's finances. You know, I don't know. Maybe you're sitting there like finances are tough and you're waiting for God to kind of help you get on the other side of this financial challenge. Isn't it true that we can, God, I think I've got to help you out. And maybe I've got to kind of cut some corners and maybe I've got to skimp some edges just to help you out, to hurry up your plan. Sarah decides, I'm going to help God out because I'm not sure God's going to come through like he said. So here's Sarah's plan. She says, Abraham, come here. Now, guys, just think about this. Let the Bible be real for a minute. Abraham, come here. Do you see my servant girl? Her name's Hagar. Abraham, I have this great plan doesn't seem like God's coming through where I'm going to get pregnant. Why don't you go sleep with my servant girl, whose name is Hagar, impregnate her, and she can carry your child for you. At that point, you can't make this stuff up, right? At that point, Abraham looks at Sarah and he's kind of like, well, if you think it's a good idea... If you think it's a good idea, I guess I'm in. Now, everybody stop for a minute. All the guys that might be listening. At that point, you know what Abraham did? At that point, he delegated away his leadership. And Abraham, as the story says, went and slept with Hagar. And guess what? She got pregnant. And she had a son. Guess what his name was? Ishmael. Why is that important for our conversation? Because when you look at the Islamic religion, they would trace themselves back to Abraham 
through Ishmael by way of Hagar. That's how the story begins. But that wasn't God's promise to Abraham. Abraham was promised a son through his wife, Sarah. And so 14 years later, 14 years, Abraham is 100 years old. While all of his friends are out playing shuffleboard, right? He's getting a nursery ready. You know why? Because his wife, Sarah, is expecting a baby. And she gives birth to that baby. And you know what they end up calling that baby? They call that baby a little boy. They called him Isaac. You know why they called him Isaac? Because Isaac means laughter. And there's nothing you can do but laugh when you're pregnant at 100 years old, right? I mean, there's no, you cannot make it up that God comes through with his promise when they're 100 years old. And all of a sudden, that's the child of the promise. Why is that important? Because Judaism would somehow trace its roots back to Abraham through Isaac by way of Sarah. Here's what happens. Now we got two boys, both of them sons of Abraham, growing up together, 14 years apart. And there's tons of jealousy. Can you imagine? And there's infighting. And God promises those two boys are going to become great nations. And even today on the world stage, we see the tension between the nations that came from those two boys. And Paul wants us to see that God was doing something more than two nations coming from two boys. And that's why he says this in verse 7. So interesting. If you got your Bibles, look back at it with me. Paul says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, And so he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Here's the point. Let's make real quick work of this and then let's try to figure this out. He's saying two great nations can trace their tree back to Abraham. Two religions can trace their tree back to Abraham. But what Paul wants them to see is the gospel, the good news coming from God is traced back to Abraham because Isaac's great, 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 take that 38 times, grandson, happens to have the name of Jesus. And spiritually speaking, all of those who attach their life to Jesus become recipients of the promise that God gave to Abraham. You see, here's the point. God wants us to see that through Abraham he promised a blessing that came through Sarah by way of Isaac in Isaac's great, great, great 38 times grandson, Jesus, was the one who came bearing the message, the gospel, the good news. And that good news is for anybody who would say yes to Jesus. Doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. Doesn't matter their race. Doesn't matter their socioeconomic status. But that's the the cool part about the gospel. You see, religion is all about how can man get to God. The gospel is about how God made his way to man. And that's what makes very interesting what Paul does in chapter 4. I want you to see this because I think there's something stark and ironic here. He says this. Now, you know the story. Chapter 4, verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, aren't you aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. You know that now, Isaac and Ishmael. One by the slave woman. You know that, Hagar. And the other by the free woman. You know that, Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. They took matters into their own hands. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of God's divine promise. And then he says, these things are to be taken figuratively. These women represent two covenants or ways of being made right with God. 
One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. That's Hagar. She represents religion. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. That's the gospel. What's the point? Here's the point. They're to be taken figuratively. Hagar and Ishmael represent the way of religion. Sarah and Isaac represent the way of the gospel. When it comes to religion, religion is all about what do I do to get to God? The gospel is all about what God did to get to me. Religion is all about fear. Think about it. I'm afraid I'm not good enough. I'm afraid I'm not doing enough. The gospel is all about freedom. Freedom knowing that Jesus was good enough. Freedom knowing that Jesus did enough at the cross for me. Religion is like slavery. I'm enslaved to my sin. I'm enslaved to trying to work my way out of my sin. The gospel is all about being a son of God and living from my identity that I have in him. Religion is all about following the rules, decorating the outside of my life, impressing people with my morality. The gospel is about saying yes to Jesus and cultivating a relationship with Jesus that grows fruit in my life. Here's what Paul is saying, and then, then I want to talk to you about Islam in particular. But he's talking to a room full of Jews and it, that, that would have that would have celebrated their heritage. We're children of Abraham. We are from the line of Isaac through Sarah. And he's saying this, you who are so bent on relating with God through your religion, you're acting like sons of Hagar. You're trying to take matters into your own hands. You're trying to add to the plan of God or subtract from the promise of God. That's what he's saying. It's ironic. He's looking at a bunch of Jews and he's saying, you're living just like your sons of Hagar. That's what he's saying. See, what's interesting is Islam is one of many illustrations of a religion that takes matters into its own hands, right? That is fear-driven and it leads to slavery. So what's the difference? Let's just talk about this for a few minutes. What's the difference between New Testament Christianity, what Jesus would have taught, and Islam and the religion? Let's talk about a couple things. First is this. Islam has a different foundation. The foundation of Islam is what they would call their holy book, the Quran. And the Quran is the, for, for an Islam, a Muslim is the holiest of holy books. Now, you can kind of trace that back. It began with a young man whose name is Muhammad, right? And so Muhammad, when he was born, his dad died right after he was born. His mom died when he was about six. Right? He was raised by his uncle and his granddad. Somewhere along the way, he, he gained this great passion for a monotheistic faith. He believed there's one God, right? And that's, that's important because he would have lived in a culture that was polytheistic. They thought, they thought there was lots of gods. Somewhere along the way, Muhammad believed there's one God. Here's how the story of Muhammad goes. Around about when he was age 40, about 610 AD, the Islamic religion would say this, that Muhammad said he began receiving messages and revelation from the angel Gabriel. And so he began receiving these, and he received them over a period of 23 years. What's interesting, a lot of people maybe don't know this, is Muhammad was illiterate, which wasn't that uncommon back then, right? But he was illiterate. And so he would recite these revelations to someone for them to write down. The word Quran means to recite. That's what it means. And so the Quran is full of these uh, recitations of Muhammad that he got supposedly from the angel Gabriel. And so the Quran is full of things like ethics and theology and law and history and things like that. For a Muslim, it is the holiest of holy books. Lots of Muslims will wash their hands before they touch the Quran, right? Uh, lots of them will hold it above their waist, right? They believe it's such a, that, that you don't want to drop the Quran on the floor. They believe the Bible has some good things in it, but it's been distorted. 
And so for them, the Quran is very much the holy of holy books. That would help some of you make sense of what happened several years ago at Guantanamo Bay, right? That's why that was so deplorable to a Muslim, because of the way they would view the Quran. The Quran is different than the Bible. You can kind of see it in the chart we have, but the, the Quran has 114 chapters. The Bible, the Bible that I have here in front of me, is a library of books, 66 books, split into two parts. In Old Testament, 39 books. New Testament, 27. The Quran has one human author who was reciting what the angel Gabriel kind of told him. When you come to the Bible, it has 40 plus authors, human authors, that are literally inspired by God to write what God wanted them to write. The Quran happened over 23 years. The Bible over 1,500 plus years. The Quran revolves around a person whose name is Muhammad. The Bible revolves around a person whose name is Jesus. Very different, very different foundations. Not only that, but Islam has different beliefs. Let's take a look at a couple. First, they have different beliefs about God. Different beliefs about God. A Muslim would believe that God is all-powerful. So would a follower of Jesus. That, that God is all-knowing. So would a follower of Jesus. That God created. So would a follower of Jesus. But a Muslim would have a view of God that he is unknowable that you can't have a relationship with God. Uh, maybe you've seen this on the news, but they refer to God as Allah. So maybe you've heard this phrase, Allah Akbar, right? It, it simply means this, Allah is the greatest. God is great. That's all they're saying, right? So for a Muslim, they have different belief about God. You can kind of see this in the chart we provide, but for a Muslim, the idea of the Trinity, that's sinful. That's sinful. That would compromise their understanding of God. New Testament Christianity, it's essential. Right? We believe that God has always existed in this beautiful relationship of love. Father loving the Son. Son loving the Father. Spirit loving the Father. Loving the Son. That God existed in love, created from loving relationship. Not only that, but they do not believe God. They, they do not picture God as a Father. Right? For them, that would be like, God's unknowable. He's not our Father. New Testament Christianity, when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he said, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That we can picture him as our daddy. But he's not like our dude. He's our daddy, right? He says, our Father, hallowed be your name. Like, our daddy's a big deal, right? Not only that, but in Islam faith, man seeks to appease God. New Testament Christianity, God is seeking to redeem man. Different beliefs about God. Different beliefs about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is mentioned in the Quran uh, 93 times. And yet Jesus in the Islamic faith is second. Second to Muhammad. He's a prophet. New Testament Christianity, Jesus is literally God in the flesh that he is the savior of the world. He died, was buried, rose again so that we could have eternal life. But he's not just savior, he's Lord, right? The one who saves us and gives us eternal life also leads us into abundant life, right? And so he's Lord, he's king. Uh, they believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but that Judas was made to look like Jesus and put in his place. New Testament Christianity would say that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for the sins of all mankind. You see, it makes interesting what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus was portrayed as crucified. Like you literally saw it. Uh, they have different beliefs about salvation. And, and here's where I really want you to lean in. And we're going to kind of land the ship here. But... but uh, the Islamic faith would have very different beliefs about salvation, how someone's made right with God. Can I read from you? And we'll, we'll put it up here so you can see. And I want to make sure you hear me say this. I'm reading from the Quran, not the Bible. The Quran, okay? But here's what the Quran says. 
When the horn is blown, no relations between them will exist on that day, and they will not ask after one another. Now look at this. Those whose scales are heavy, those are the successful. But those whose scales are light, those are they who have lost their souls. In hell, they will dwell forever. The fire lashes their faces, and therein they grimace. Here's the way the Islamic faith would see salvation and how someone's made right with God. They see God as a judge, and that literally all of us stand before God with the scales, and we all have bad things. We all have bad things in our life. And so the goal is to somehow outweigh the bad with good. So that when that day comes and we stand before God, the scales are this way, where my good is outweighing my bad. I want to somehow put enough good in my life that outweighs all of the bad, the, the, the times in my life where I've had bad thoughts, I've done bad things, bad habits, whatever it might be. So that's the way a Muslim would see God. He's a judge who's weighing my life on scales. And that's why... For, for the Muslim faith, these five pillars of Islam are so important. And maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. You might want to write these down. The very first pillar is just this daily declaration of faith. For a, for a Muslim, every day they would want to say, there is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his messenger. That's what they'd want to say every day. Not only that, but the second pillar is this. They have these obligatory prayers five times a day facing Mecca. A Muslim would pray. Why? Because he wants to make sure his good outweighs his bad. Not only that, they have this pillar of compulsory giving. Two and a half percent of their wealth given away to charity. Why? I want my good to outweigh my bad. Beyond that, they fast during the month of Ramadan, sun up to sundown. And so a, a Muslim would want to do that because I want my good to outweigh my bad before I stand before God. And the final pillar is this, that, that they take a pilgrimage to Mecca, preferably every year, but at least once in their lifetime. Why? Because God is a judge and I want to make sure that my good outweighs my bad. You see, Islam and New Testament Christianity have vastly different beliefs when it comes to salvation. For a Muslim... Their belief is salvation is when my good outweighs my bad as I stand before the judge who is God. For a Christian, salvation is this. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's salvation. You see, the Islam religion has a very different gospel. Can I say it this way? It's a gospel that is no gospel. It's a, that's not good news. That's not good news at all. Think about it. If that's my gospel, how good is good enough? Now listen to me for a second. And then I want to land with two things and be done and pray with you. Such a privilege to be able to talk to you sitting there in your kitchen table in your living room. It's easy to see in the Muslim faith, in Islam, this idea that they have this different belief about salvation, but what is easy to see in them and in their religion sometimes can be hard to spot in us. And the truth be told, there's some of you maybe that are sitting there and that's exactly how you see God. I've been a pastor for 26 years and I talk to people all the time and here's what they say, I just hope when I get to heaven that my good outweighs my bad. And literally have the very same understanding of God that he stands there at these scales. That's why, if your Bible's still open, Paul said this, verse 10, Galatians 3, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us, saved us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith 
we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying God is a judge. That's what he's saying. God is a judge. But he's saying in Christ, I am blessed because Christ was cursed for me. That's why Jesus died. That's all he's saying. Paul is saying this, and for some of you, you might need to hear this. I don't know. He's saying nobody will ever be made right with God by pressing into a religion, by keeping the law, by hoping they're good enough, by somehow hoping their good outweighs their bad. Why? Because if I'm just hoping that my good outweighs my bad, you know what the problem is? I still have my bad. And God can't exist with sin. And that's where the gospel's good news because the gospel says God is a judge who sent Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, you know what he did? He came and took my bucket of sin to the cross with him. He took all of it. And it's covered by his blood. And you know what he did? The minute I say yes to him as my savior, he pours his righteousness, all of the righteousness of Jesus into my bucket. God sees me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You see, that's good news. Like, that's awesome news, right? That God is a judge and I can receive the blessing of salvation because Jesus was cursed. But that's not all the gospel is. And for some of you, it's so important. You see what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4. He said, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you're his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you an heir. What is he saying? Here's, here's the last thing I would write down. God is a father who paid the full price for you to be adopted into his family. Why is that important? Because I don't know all of you that I'm talking to, but some of you might be like, I said yes to Jesus, and you have this picture of God as a judge, but you've never walked into this picture of him as your father. And it totally, it totally changes the way you see your life following Jesus. Because what Paul is saying is this, I don't relate with God like an employee to an employer, like a slave to a master, but I relate to God as my father. He is my father. I have an identity. I'm not fearful and striving to keep my place around the table. I have a seat around the table, and at the head of the table is God, and he's my father. He adopted me into his family. He paid the full price for me. See, for some of you, you have this picture of God. He's this judge, but he's disconnected. And instead, he's a father who desperately wants to have an intimate, personal, ongoing relationship with you. He loves you. So what do we do with all this? Well, some of you might be sitting there in your living room. Maybe you're watching this around the table. I don't know. And maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. You're hoping your good outweighs your bad. Can I encourage you today, right there, right there at your table, that you can stop what you're doing and say, Jesus, I believe that when you died, you died for all of my bad stuff, all of the stuff that I'm guilty of. And I want to say yes to you as the only one who can save me from that. And in saying yes to you, I'm asking that you wrap me in your righteousness, that you pour your righteousness over me. That minute, that moment, the moment that happens, you receive the blessing of salvation. And God becomes your father. If you prayed that prayer, maybe had that conversation, I'd love for you to tell Pastor Tony, Pastor Seth, one of the pastors, somebody here at Medina East. For some of you, you've prayed that prayer. But maybe the takeaway is simply this. is for you to begin to see God as your father. For you to begin to relate to him as your father. 
to begin to relate to him as his son or his daughter, to begin to have the freedom to pursue him, to live from the identity you have from him, not for an identity to appease him. You see, here's what Paul would say. You can sit in church. You can sit in church all of your life and live like a son of Hagar. The invitation is for you to have the blessing that came through Isaac by way of Jesus. What about those of you who have Muslim friends? I hope you have Muslim friends. And I hope you'll be friendly to them. Can I just make this suggestion? It's important first that you know there is a difference. But can I encourage you this way? Don't spend so much time arguing your point. My encouragement to you would be this. Live your reality in the gospel. And if you'll live your reality as somebody who has received the blessing of salvation with God as your father, you know what I know will happen? All of a sudden, the grace of the gospel will produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. You know what's exciting when that happens? When your Muslim friends, your neighbors, whoever bump up against your life, and that's the fruit that's coming from your life, they get to taste and see that God is good. That would be my encouragement to you. I love you guys. Can't wait to see what God's going to do in and through you. So grateful we get to do this journey together. I'd love to pray with you as we close. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. Thank you that we can call you our Father. God, I am so grateful that Jesus took my place on the cross. I'm so grateful that he grabbed my bucket of sin and that he wrapped me in his righteousness. And I am blown away by the fact that you allow me to come into your presence and call you my daddy. And that you love me. And that you pursued me. God, I want to live from that. And I pray when people bump up against my life, that they would taste and see that you are good. And I pray for my Muslim friends. I pray that they would see that you are a good God who loves them and pursues them and made a way for them to be right with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.